Church, it's a, a privilege for me to bring this message to you today, and I'm trusting it will minister to you just as much as it has to me throughout this week. As you are aware, we are in a series called Preaching the Kingdom, where we've been looking at the, the life-changing words of Jesus in what is fondly known as the Sermon on the Mount. Right from the very beginning, it is evident that Jesus doesn't mince his words. He doesn't sugarcoat things. Because right from the start, he gets straight to the point. But he also gets straight to the heart of the matter. As we've been learning, Jesus is not concerned about the outward appearance of man. He's concerned about the heart. And when he speaks to his disciples in a very countercultural way, he begins to really drill down deep into what it means to be his followers that have a heart for him and have a heart for his perfect ways. You see, that's what Jesus cares about, the heart, because he doesn't want us to be living in hypocrisy. You know, where we have these masks coming to church on Sunday, but from Monday to Saturday, we are someone completely different. He wants us to be people of integrity. And integrity, church, is this idea of the person that I am here today standing at this pulpit is the same person I am by myself, the same person I am with my family, the same person I am this week at the office and everywhere else I go. That's the standard that Jesus is pointing us towards, and he knows that it all begins in the heart. Last week, we looked at Jesus and the heart of the law, where Jesus made it very clear that he did not come to get rid of the Old Testament law, but, but rather to fulfill it. And as we identified, Jesus brings correction to the way that it was taught by the, the scribes and the Pharisees, and in our own inability to fulfill the law, no matter how hard we try, we now know that the law was intended to point us to a a glorious Savior, and His name is Jesus. In last week's message, we looked at that section of Scripture beginning in verse 21, and I just want to read it quickly for you this morning to refresh your memory. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, who is ever angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, but I say to you, and then he begins to proceed to explain the correct way of teaching understanding and applying these laws to our lives. And six times through Matthew chapter 5, from verse 21 all the way through to the end of the chapter, Jesus uses the statement. You have heard that it was said to those of old, but I say to you. And I want you to underline in your Bibles where it says, but I say to you. Because you see, church, the reason why Jesus keeps on emphasizing the statement is because he's letting us know that he's the supreme authority in our lives. In other words, Jesus is saying, listen, 
This is what you've heard before, but now I'm here, and this is what I say, and I have supreme authority to speak about these things. At the end of the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus commissions his disciples, do you, do you remember what he says? He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All authority has been given to Jesus in heaven and on earth. Paul said of Jesus in Ephesians chapter 1 that he is far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. So the question that we have to ask ourselves before we move any further this morning is this. Does Jesus have supreme authority in our lives? The word supreme means that there is nothing higher and that there is nothing else that compares. It means control and influence. So to rephrase the question, does Jesus have the ultimate, the highest ranking control and influence in your life? That's the question. Because the truth is, we can read all about how Jesus tells us to live and to love. We can read all about how he instructs us to have Christ-like behavior and to be the salt and light in this world. But if we don't take it as coming from the supreme authority... We might just walk out of here today and forget about applying these principles to our lives. Or we will be influenced by the culture of the day on their opinion about adultery, about anger, about murder, and about the issues of life that we face on a daily basis. You see, we shouldn't care about that. We should care about what Jesus says. And church, I raise this point because most people... Even a lot of Christians these days can't distinguish between the moral standard that, that God has given us and the standard or the moral standard of worldly behavior. Let me give you an example. There's a, a faith-based research group called the Barner Group who do all types of interesting studies around important societal issues especially in regard to how people view and live out their faith. And they did some research not so long ago on what culture feels about pornography. And this is what they found, and I quote, Two-thirds of teens and young adults agree that not recycling is a greater immoral act than viewing pornography. I kid you not. Out of things such as stealing, lying, having an affair, overeating, and as I mentioned, not recycling, teens and young adults placed all porn-related actions at the very bottom of the list. And this is one of many examples. But church, what this shows us is that there is no real moral compass these days unless we look to the supreme authority on every matter of morality. And so when Jesus says, but I say to you, his words should have sway in our lives. They should have supreme authority and influence in them. We shouldn't care about what is acceptable in our culture. Amen? Does that make sense, church? 
So Jesus starts to address these types of issues that we face in our culture today as we now move into our next portion of Scripture. Let's pick it up from Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. But I say to you, and Jesus makes the statement to reveal the issues of the heart as he continually raises the bar and calls us to a higher standard, right? And he's really speaking and describing where, where sin begins, it begins in the heart. And church, I want to be upfront with you. This next section that we're going to go into today in the message is probably in some way or another going to make you feel a bit uncomfortable. Because based on the portion of scripture we just read, I'm going to focus on and speak to how we win the battle against temptation. A very important issue that, you know, we all have to deal with as believers, but not something that we really like to talk that much about because it's uncomfortable. But by the grace of God, we trust the Holy Spirit to do a transformational work through His Word this morning. So... We're going to identify two strategies that God has given us in winning the battle against temptation. Very simply, number one is to stop it before it starts, and then number two is to stop it once it has already taken control of your life. Does that sound okay? A quick question. Who's ever heard of that saying, if looks could kill? You've heard it before, right? It's, let me give an example. It's like when you come home late after a round of golf and your wife and children are all dressed up and waiting for you to go to that function that you forgot about. You get this death stare that almost makes you feel like you're going to collapse. <laughs> or when you go to, you have an early morning training session, but when you get back, your wife has only had two hours sleep, right? She's waiting at the door with your four-week-old. They are both crying and you get this death stare that just about cuts your head off. Right? And you say, to try and divert the attention, you say, honey, if looks could kill, I'd be dead right now. None of you guys have ever been there before, obviously. No. I say that in a light-hearted way, but in reference to our scripture today, looks actually can kill. You see... Temptation is so dangerous because temptation leads to sin, and sin can lead to death. Looks can kill because so often in our lives, it doesn't just stop with a look. It leads to, to something else. And if left unchecked, it leads to a sin, and that sin leads to death spiritually and sometimes even physically. And you might say, well, Pastor, you know what? I would never fall into such a sin. This is an important message that I'm sure a lot of people here today need to hear, but, but my spouse and I, we've got the, we've got the perfect marriage. Well, you know what? I've, I'm very strong in my convictions. I'm a, a strong Christian. I grew up in the church. I'm fine. Church, let me tell you something. I want you to know that it doesn't matter if you grew up in the church, if you work in the church, if you serve in some ministry, if you go to a connect group, or even if you have your doctorate in theology, 
Samson worked for the Lord, and yet he fell into sexual sin with Delilah. David worshipped the Lord, he loved the Lord, and yet he, he murdered a man because he had sexual relations with his wife. Peter loved the Lord, Peter served the Lord, and yet he denied him publicly. Just because you grew up in the church, you go to church, and you work in the church, it doesn't mean that you are exempt or immune from temptation and sin. As a matter of fact, I would let you know that it actually makes you a, a bigger target for it. If you're walking with the Lord, if you're serving the Lord, if you're active in the church, you, are a, you have a bigger target on your back than those that don't. Why? Because when you become a threat to Satan, Satan wants to threaten you. When you become a threat to the gates of hell, Satan wants to bring the gates of hell and make your life hell. Because he realizes that as long as you are walking with God, as long as you are walking in the kingdom of light, right, you are a threat to the kingdom of darkness. And so he desires to neutralize that threat, and he wants to take you down. He wants to take you out, and he will bring an even greater temptation. And the effect of temptation, church, or giving into temptation can be absolutely devastating. Because by giving into temptation, you can lose in a moment what it took a lifetime to build. And you see, we are all in the business of building. We want to be a part of building kingdom, right? We want to build, be a part of building God's legacy, His legacy. We want to build a legacy for our family, for our children, and maybe even for our business. And when we give in to temptation, in one moment we can lose what it's taken our entire lives to build. And yes, we serve a God that restores, right? But you don't want to work your whole life and in one moment destroy that. All those bricks, all those walls, all that effort and work can come tumbling and crashing down in an instant. So if you're saying, listen, I'm fine, when Jesus says, but I say to you, then think of it as preventative maintenance. Oswald Chambers said, an unguarded strength is a double weakness. I think that's worth saying again. An unguarded strength is a double weakness. So if you have a strong marriage, or you are strong in your convictions, but you've stopped doing preventative maintenance, you've stopped guarding it, you need to know that an unguarded strength can be your greatest weakness. And it will become the area in your life that Satan most targets, that Satan most pursues, that he most desires to destroy. So we need to constantly be making sure that we are preventing that breakdown. Amen? And let me just say this. We, are, we all deal with temptation. We are all sinners. We are all lost. We are all destitute and depleted apart from the saving power of Jesus Christ. You know, a lot of times, we've heard it before, I'm not saying you all think like this, but we've heard it before, that people think the pastor and the leadership of the church, we don't deal with things like this. We don't deal with sin or we don't deal with temptation like you do. We all deal with temptation and sin, church. None of us are perfect. None of us are exempt from this. 
So as we deal with temptation in our lives, yes, you may be here today and, and you're thinking, if I could just fix this one thing, if I could just stop looking at pornography, or if I could stop lying, or if I could stop stealing or, or gambling or drinking, or if I could come off these drugs that are controlling my life, then I'd be a good person. I want you to know that you are focusing on the wrong thing. Yes, you need to be aware of your sin, but the thing that you need to focus on isn't external, it is internal. If you focus on your heart, if you focus on your relationship with Jesus, if you allow that to grow, if you nurture that, I promise you, church, I promise you the things that are tormenting you on the outside will naturally go away as you focus on what's happening on the inside. That's why Jesus speaks to the issues of the heart. Because he knows that if we try to fix things externally on the outside, it's going to always be popping up somewhere along the line. And so how do we do this? Let's look at how we do this. Our first strategy in winning the battle against temptation is to, to stop it before it starts. And where does it start? It starts with the heart, right? Yes, it can start with a thought, but like Scripture says, as a man thinks in his heart, so, so is he. And you see, church, sin deceives you and me into thinking that because I haven't done the actual deed, as long as I don't do it, I'm okay. But that's thinking like a Pharisee. Because the question is not, did you do it? The question is, why didn't you do it? Where am I going with this? Well, was it out of pure motives or impure motives? Did you not do that sin because you genuinely knew that it would grieve the heart of God? Did you not do that sin because you built up safeguards in your life like biblical truth? And when that sin came, you knew it was a lie from Satan and you were able to rebuke his plan to deceive you? Or did you not do that sin just because you knew that it was wrong? And you may say, what is the difference? But here's the point. What's my motive? What's the reason behind my decision? Because after making the decision not to sin, and I still want to do it, my problem still exists. The root is still there. This is where the Pharisees went wrong. Can you remember what Jesus says to them in Luke chapter 16? He says to them, you like to appear righteous in public, but God knows your heart. And he says, what this world esteems is detestable in the sight of God. And yes, that's a very strong rebuke. But Jesus was making the point that if the motive wasn't right and the heart wasn't changed, you've missed the point and you're still in sin anyway. You haven't found your breakthrough. And you know, church, it's the hidden sins that can often be the most destructive because no one knows. You can sit and listen to a message like today and say, so good. You can say amen and you can nod your head, but all the while be thinking, you know what, man, I hope the person next to me doesn't know what I'm really doing. I hope the person behind me doesn't know that what type of sin is really in my heart. 
We can hide it and we can pretend that we are righteous just like the Pharisees, but inside we are destitute and we are broken. That's why Jesus wants to deal with the heart. And that's why Jesus addresses the heart behind the sin of adultery in verse 27, because he knows that in practically every act of adultery, there's a sequence of hidden events that take place. What do I mean by that? Well, church, when you sow a thought, you reap an act. When you sow an act, you reap a habit. When you sow a habit, you reap a character. And when you sow a character, you reap a destiny. See, it starts with your hidden thoughts. It starts with your mind, and then it begins to manifest in your heart. And if you are not guarding your heart, you are just destruction waiting to happen. You're just waiting for that ignition to be turned, and it's, and it's all going to explode. Jesus says that you have heard that it was said to those of old that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus starts with the looks. He says, whoever looks at a woman. I don't know why it's always the guys looking at the woman, but I think, I think Jesus knows how, how men are made up, I guess. All the women are saying, honey, did you hear what pastor said then? Now, church, this doesn't just mean a casual glance, by the way, this word look. Because in the Greek language, it's the word blepo, and it refers to the continuous act of looking. It's not just an incidental or involuntary glance. It's an intentional and repeated gazing. Come on, you know what I'm talking about, right? There's a difference between noticing and gazing. And Jesus isn't speaking of unexpected and unavoidable exposure to sexual temptation. Rather, church, Jesus is speaking to the person who intentionally puts themselves in a place of vulnerability. The person who, if they're exposed, they give the devil a foothold by letting him infiltrate their thought processes. Martin Luther put it this way. You might have heard this before. He says, you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can't stop it from making a nest in your hair, right? I like that illustration. Because look, church, it's not your fault that the world around you is sinful. You can't help the fact that most of what you watch and listen to and have access to these days is overly sexualized. It's not your fault that according to recent statistics that there's on average 16,000 sexual references that you're going to watch on television this year, depending on how much television you watch. You can't help it, but guess what? It's also not your job to be the morality police. It's not your job to walk around and say, well, you know what? I struggle with lustful thoughts. So listen, you put some extra clothes on because that's just inappropriate. <laughs> it's not your job. It's not your fault that you are exposed to what's happening in the world today, but guess what? You can't control how you respond to it. You can't, for instance, control the con content on television, but you can switch the television off. You can't control what other people do, how they're dressed, but you can control yourself. And you see, that's the gist of this passage. 
You are responsible for your actions. You are responsible for your eyes and your hands. So keep yourself from sin. It's why Job said in Job 31, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. And he says in verse 7, If my steps have turned from the path, if my heart has been led by my eyes, or if my hands have been defiled, then may others eat what I have sown, and may my crops be uprooted. That's making a covenant with your heart. And you see, church, with Satan, there is always strings attached. There's always strings attached because nothing is ever free for sin. Nothing. There's always a price to pay. And he wants to bring it to you and make you think that there's no strings attached, that there's no consequences, and that you can get away with it for free. He just says, hey, you know what? It's fine. Indulge. Just look at that website and you can delete the, the internet history later. Well, have a conversation with this guy or this girl on, on uh, Facebook Messenger. Don't worry, you can delete the conversation later on. But you know what? It's fine. It's just a one-night stand. It, it doesn't mean anything. You don't actually love them anyway. Nobody's going to find out. But the truth is, church, there's always a price to pay. For Samson, the price was his strength and his eyes. For David, the price was his son and his testimony. For Judas, the price was his eternity apart from the Lord. The thing is, church, that the devil will never tell you the cost of your sin before you do it. But guess what? He'll always let you know after. And he'll say, by the way, what you did, here's the payment and it's demanded in full right now. He'll never tell you the cost before, but he'll constantly remind you after the fact what you've done wrong. He won't tell you that the cost of sex and lust is emptiness and lack of self-worth. He won't tell you that the cost of addiction is helplessness, shame, and bondage. And he won't tell you that the ultimate cost of your sin is your eternity apart from God. And church... It is why we are always better off to obey God and trust in His provision rather than to impatiently and selfishly provide for our own needs and our own desires in any way that would cause us to, to disobey or compromise His word. And we're not going to have time to get into the second strategy for winning the battle against temptation today. We'll do that next time, but... As we close today, let me leave you with these thoughts. The first strategy to winning the battle against temptation is to avoid placing yourselves in tempting situations in the first place. Because it's easier to manage a fire in the fire pit than in a forest. Because if that fire gets out, it can burn trees, it can kill firefighters, it can kill civilians, it can burn down houses. It can bring immeasurable damage. And church, it's the same with us. We've got to keep the fire in the pits. We can't let it get out. Because temptation left unguarded will destroy your family. 
It will destroy your relationships with your loved ones. It will destroy your destiny. It will leave a wake of destruction behind you. And church, like I said earlier, we all deal with temptation. We are all sinners destitute without the saving power of Jesus Christ. But if we guard our hearts and we set our minds on the right things, if we set our minds on Christ, I promise you, you will be able to have breakthrough in these areas that you're struggling with in your life. Remember, if you focus on your heart, if you focus on your relationship with Jesus, if you allow that to grow, if you nurture that, the things that, you are, that are tormenting you on the outside will naturally go away. And can we do this on our own? Of course not. But if you begin to meditate on the right things, and if you submit these temptations to the Lord, if you submit your request to the Lord, His authority over the enemy of your soul will bring the breakthrough and the peace that you need. Because let's be honest here this morning. If you've lived in sin and temptation before, or you're living in, in it today, you have no peace. Because you're filled with guilt, you're filled with shame, you are filled with, with anxiety. But the God of peace says, I want to come and deal with your heart. I want to bring complete breakthrough in your life. You know what? That encourages me because that shows me how much Jesus loves me. He wants to get to the very heart of the matter. He wants you to be completely whole. And I want to close by reading the words of Paul. He's parting words to the church at Philippi. And I want to read it to you from myself to you as the body this morning. And I want to say to you, be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, thanking God for what He's already done in our lives, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, finally, Frontline Church, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in Jesus. The one that said, but I say to you. He says, do these things and the God of peace will be with you. Amen.